Well, I invite you to take your Bibles at this time and open them to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the second part in a series entitled The New Versus the Old. As we look at the 18 verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, this morning, I think we, I'm hoping that we'll get through verse 6. We've already gotten through the first three verses last week when we were together. So this morning, we'll be focusing on verses 4 through 6, but I'm going to go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. Please follow along as I read. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1 says this. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, having been written on our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, ministered to by us, having been written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of hearts of flesh. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to come together, and Lord, as we consider your word and what Paul writes here about the new covenant, how grateful we are for that covenant, and help us to understand that better this morning as we consider Paul's words, your word, your word which is holy, which is meant to build up your church. Use your word this time to build us up in you, those of us who know you, and those who don't know you, I pray, Lord, that your word will convict and that it will cause the lost to see their desperate need to repent and turn and trust in Christ as Lord. So we commit this time to you. May you be honored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week as we jumped into this section on the new covenant, so the section on really Paul's digression here. This is a great digression that will last many chapters, but Paul is writing the Corinthians partly to defend himself and his own apostleship. He's been attacked by someone in Corinth. And uh, last week, we began by talking about some of the covenants from the Old Testament, as opposed to the New Covenant, which is also found in the Old Testament. But we, we talked about the Noahic Covenant from Genesis chapter 9, where God promised never to flood the earth again. We talked about the priestly covenant from Numbers 25, where he promised to provide priests for his people, for the nation of Israel. We looked at the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Genesis 18, where God promised three elements to the descendants of Abraham, land, seed, and blessing, or he promised them to Abraham, which would affect his descendants. We talked about the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and 2 Samuel 23, where God promised a descendant greater than Solomon who would be king, who would reign forever. And we talked about the Mosaic covenant or the Mosaic law, Exodus 24, verses 7 and 8. God declared that 
all the blessings of his kingdom are for those who are righteous, those who are completely obedient to his law. And we said last week that one of the difficulties with all of these old covenants is that they were incomplete. They pointed towards God's goodness and mercy and his rightness, but they didn't really explain explicitly how you can be right with God. They neglected to explain the way of salvation. The Corinthians knew the way of salvation. They had heard from Paul that the only way of salvation is through faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, Paul had, it, it says, For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And, and so Paul had written to the Corinthians prior to this. Paul had visited Corinth, had lived among them for 18 months. Paul had preached the gospel. They were familiar with the gospel. Whether they had a Jewish background or not, they were somewhat familiar with the Old Testament because Paul had been teaching them from the Old Testament. He started teaching Jews in Corinth, and then he went and went to the Gentiles as well, but he would still continue to teach on God's revelation to Israel, got the Old Testament, and he would talk about the different covenants, obviously, because he mentions the new covenant here. When you think about the covenants in the Old Testament, you have the covenants were intended for and affected directly Israel. You have the Davidic covenant was one that was for Israel. It would affect a king for Israel. The Mosaic covenant was for Israel. It was their law. But the new covenant was for who? For Israel. The new covenant was for Israel. Jeremiah 31, listen to these words, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. So even though God gave these covenants and they were primarily for Israel, it was always intended that Gentiles, non-Jews, could benefit from the covenants to Israel. Even in Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, <clears throat> it says in Genesis 12, 3, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the Davidic covenant 
promised an everlasting kingdom with a descendant of David on the throne. And yet in Amos 9, verses 11 and 12, it says that in a future day, after a period where Israel has been scattered, God will restore the tabernacle of David. After that time, the Gentiles will seek the Lord. And I I, want to actually turn with me to Acts chapter 15, because I think uh, some of the questions we had last week after we ended, I I really want to try and make it clear what we're saying here, but I, I have to lay some groundwork. And so if we look at Acts 15, remember in Acts 15, we'll try to piece all this together, but in Acts 15, we have the Jerusalem Council. The issue of this council was that there were some Judaizers who were out there, false teachers, who were saying that in order to become a Christian, you need to become a Jew first. So Paul makes a trip to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles to discuss this very issue. And this is a significant point in church history. It's a major church council where the leaders of the church and the go- discuss the gospel and do you have to become a Jew and follow dietary restrictions and circumcision and the Sabbath and all these Old Testament laws? Do you have to do, do new Gentile converts have to follow them? Or for that matter, do Jews still need to follow them? And so they're discussing this. And if you pick it up at verse 13 of Acts 15, Now, after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brothers, listen to me. Simon Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So Paul here is very pro-Gentile believers, not becoming Jews. James speaks up and he says, Hey, remember Simon Peter had a vision and, and he was able to go and minister to Cornelius and Gentiles came to faith in Christ. And so we know that Peter has said that God has said that the gospel is for Gentiles. And we've seen them get saved and display the same kind of gifts of the Holy Spirit that we have displayed. We've seen God testify to the validity of a Gentile believer who is now one of God's people, though he isn't a Jew. And so... um, when, when we read that, he, he brings that up. And then, then James says in verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is written. So <clears throat> again, there, there are those who are trying to argue that you need to become a Jew if you're going to be saved. Peter said that's not the case. James is standing up at this meeting and says, not only did Peter say it, but the scriptures agree with that. And he quotes Amos chapter 9. And, he, and, and this is significant because I, I think that there are those who believe that the church has replaced Israel and that there is no longer any promises that were made to Israel in the Old Testament which are not yet fulfilled. Those will somehow be fulfilled in the church. But I think that this passage is a major problem for those who believe that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that that the church replaces Israel. The the church benefits from promises to Israel, but God has a future plan for Israel. James 
here in trying to defend that Gentiles can become true believers, he quotes Amos chapter 9. Take a look at verse 16 of Acts 15. After these things, now, if you read Amos 9, this is one of those statements that keeps on in those days, and then after these things. The, the time period is the day of the Lord. The time period is, this we know, as the millennium. So in the future, it's, it's fine for right now, just say, in the future. And this is, this is James quoting uh, Amos, but he's talking about a far-off time in the future, and that would have been for Amos about seven, eight hundred years, eight hundred years before Christ, but he's quoting him now, and listen to what he says, after these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the fallen booths of David, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by name, called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So here's his argument. His argument is that Amos said that in a time which is still yet future, past James's time, in the time of the first century, that the temple will be rebuilt and restored and Gentiles will be saved. And he's saying that, trying to encourage people that we shouldn't be upset that there's no future for Israel when Gentiles get saved because there's a future time where more Gentiles will get saved. Take a look at verse 19. Therefore, I judge that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them, and he gives them some certain instructions. So James is saying, essentially, even the Old Testament agrees that there's a future time where many Gentiles will come to faith and be brought into and a part of. Now, uh, we know that time to be a future millennial kingdom uh, where thousands of Jews will be saved, but there will also be Gentiles uh, at that time. It's enough for you to realize that according to James's argument here that he's saying, we don't need to worry about Judaism. We don't need to worry about God's plan for Israel. It's safe. It still has a lot that's yet to be fulfilled, and there will be Gentiles saved in the future. So we don't need to be worried if Gentiles are being saved now. That's his argument. Now, if you believe that the church has replaced Israel, you have a very difficult time with this passage because now you're saying that God has a future plan for Israel, but that's the church and there will be people who are in the church who will be saved or who are Gentiles who will be saved, so we don't need to worry about people in the church. It just, it just, it just his argument doesn't seem to make sense here. Okay, hopefully what I just read there will make a little bit of sense and will add to what we're carrying on with. So um, <clears throat> what I had said before we went into that little tangent is that It's always been God's plan that Gentiles could benefit from promises made to Israel. Genesis 12, 3, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. So by Abraham's descendants, there will be some blessing for all nations. 
and we know that to be Christ and the gospel. Um, and, but prior to Christ's first coming, then if you wanted to participate in those benefits for Israel, you needed to become a Jew. And there were provisions for you to become a Jewish proselyte, even if you were a Gentile. You find those in Exodus chapter 12, verses 48 and 49, among other places. <clears throat> but after Jesus rose from the grave and the church was established in Acts chapter 2, it was no longer necessary to become a Jew to benefit from covenants that were made for Israel, even though you're not Israel, and even though God has a future plan for Israel. I'm going to read uh, Romans 4, verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be according to grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Romans 4, 17, as it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. It's a quote from Genesis 17, 5. So Abraham, just just think about this. Abraham is called a father of many nations. You know, when you're a kid, you go to church camp or whatever, and you sing this goofy song called Father Abraham Had Many Sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. And it's this kind of obnoxious song that's almost a little bit irreverent and you sing it with your tongue out now and everybody on one leg or whatever with one arm moving. They've got all these different... Do you remember that song? Well, there's a great truth behind that dorky song. And the truth is that you being a Gentile have Abraham as your father. How so? If you believe, because Romans 4 tells us Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteous. He is the father of faith. And anyone who believes God's word as Abraham did, they're a child of Abraham, spiritually speaking. And so we are children of Abraham if we believe. If you're a believer, you can say, I have Abraham as a father. I'm not a Jew, but because he believed, In the same way he believed, I believe by faith. He believed in God's promise that he should leave his land of Chaldea and go where God told him and that God would give him a land and a seed. He had no children at the time and be a blessing to many nations. We look back and we believe that God did provide a land for Abraham's descendants, and that the seed that was given produced Isaac and Jacob, and all those who are descendants of Isaac and Jacob trace their lineage as people who are Israel. And out of Israel came Christ, who is the seed in Genesis 3, who crushes the head of the serpent in the future. And so we look back And we are blessed because we understand that God sent his own son, who is God, in the flesh to live a perfect life here and die as a sacrifice, as a substitute for you. And if you believe in Christ's sufficient sacrifice on the cross 
for you and by faith turn from your sin and trust in Christ for redemption, for righteousness, then God looks at your account and doesn't see your sin because he's taken that out of your account and placed it on the cross where Christ pays for it fully. And he's taken Christ's righteousness and placed that into your account so that when God looks at the film of your life, he doesn't see all that you've done. He sees Christ's righteousness. And he looks at your life and he says, well done. This this person's life, this guy's life or this girl's life looks just like my son's life. It's another perfect life. Well done. And, And so from a judicial perspective, God looks as a holy judge who cannot tolerate sin, will not tolerate sin, will not be in the presence of sin, but he says, enter into my rest you who are righteous, because he sees Christ's righteousness, and that is credited to your account by faith, because you have believed on Christ. And so you are a child of Abraham in the sense that you have faith like Abraham's, and just as he is saved, you are saved. He looked forward to it and believed what God had revealed to him. You look back, but we believe what God has revealed through his word. Okay. So last week we were talking about the superior superiority of the new covenant and I quoted from Hebrews 8 <clears throat> which quotes Jeremiah 31 the new covenant but the but the last verse of Hebrews 8 verse 13 says when he said a new covenant He made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And I want to make it clear because I had some questions afterwards, people who didn't ask questions when I said it's time to ask questions, but people who came after said, well, I have a question and we ran out of time, so I'll give it to you. We didn't sit there and lull and say we didn't have any questions, but what concerns me sometimes is and helps me. It helps me, so I I don't want to discourage you from asking me questions, even if you don't get a chance to ask them while we have our question time. But uh, what concerns me is that some of the questions I got afterwards were questions like, well, if the old covenants were made obsolete by the new covenants, then what do we need the New Testament for, Uh, the Old Testament for? Like, do we need the Old Testament? Like, is it important? Are you saying it's unimportant? And I in no way want to be interpreted as saying it's it's unimportant because the Old Covenant, the Old Testament is important. Even studying the Old Covenants are important. However, when the writer of Hebrews said they're obsolete, he's saying that following things that were given as signs in Old Covenant is no longer necessary because the New Covenant is so much better. It's so superior. And Paul taught the same thing. Um, Paul said that Galatians 3.24 and 25, therefore the law has become our tutor unto Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. The writer of Hebrews had said, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. And so when the writer of Hebrews says that 
the old covenants, uh, let me see, whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old. He made, when, the, when he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. Those became obsolete in the sense that you no longer need to, practice, to, to sacrifice an animal because of sin. Why is that? Because Christ is a much better and sufficient sacrifice. And so we don't need to keep on bringing animals to the temple because that was really pointing towards Christ. So that is obsolete. But that doesn't mean that the Old Testament is obsolete. And, man, there's a lot more I could say about that. But let me stop there because I I really, I've already just kind of just, just like I feel like a shotgun of, uh, of passages. What questions do you have? Before we go on, before we even jump into our text, I want to I want to just see what's going on out there. Yes. So I I think I get your question. Let me see if this answers it. Okay, your question is about the relationship between Israel and the church in somehow fulfilling the new covenant. Um, And if you read Jeremiah 31, he says, verse 33, but this covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh, I will put my law within them and on their heart and will write it and will be their God and they shall be my people and they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, No Yahweh, for they will all know me, the least to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So you have elements there. You have forgiveness. You have their sin not being remembered. You have um, an internal change. So the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law was an external law, and uh, the, the, but the new covenant is something inside of you where you're like, I want to follow God's law, and I ha- now have the ability to do that because of Christ's righteousness and because of his spirit, and we'll, we'll touch on that. So when the church was established, the Jews, if they were genuine believers in Yahweh, would have converted into become Christians. Now, it was a transitional time. And so if you're a Jew and you grew up following Yahweh, the true Yahweh, and you were a believer in him and you were saved, say, as an Old Testament saint, okay? But then you found Christ 
and you recognized him as the Messiah, and so you became a member of a church that has both Jews and Gentiles, you are then, you, you now are, are saved as a New Testament saint, and maybe there's a Gentile who had no relationship with God before. That was a pagan from Ephesus or wherever, or Corinth. You know, to be called a Corinthian was equivalent to be called a prostitute. That's kind of what they were known for. So, so the, you're a debaucherous person from a debaucherous place. You become a, a Christian. Now you're worshiping along with a Jew. You're both members of the church. And today, you, if you are Jewish and you want to benefit from the promises made through the new covenant, you need to confess Christ as Lord. You need to become a Christian. You need to be, you know, but there will be a day in the future when the, when the church is raptured and there will be a great time of tribulation and there will be thousands of Jews who will be saved during that time as well. And they will be saved not necessarily from becoming, from starting a church and become a Christian because the church is gone, but they will become what we are called as, what we refer to as tribulation saints and then they will have a special place in the millennium, those especially who were martyred during that time, but those who believe will enter into the kingdom of God and really uh, come to fruition a lot of what's promised in the Old Testament passages like Amos 9. Does that make sense? So when you think about these different, if this has always been God's plan. God didn't start off with, hey, let's create a couple of people in the garden, see how that works out. Oh, I forgot about serpents. It's not working out so well. Let's come up with another plan. Uh, oh, we got some murder here. We're going to have to do something. How about if I have some laws? Oh, these are, now they're not following them. Uh, now what we, let's try a new covenant. It's not that. This is God's plan from the very beginning. But he decided to reveal himself through a people, through the nation of Israel, and then he decided to, and, and, and at this current time, Israel has largely rejected him, and God is calling those who are from all nations to worship him in his church, okay? Um, so... When we look at um, how this affects us, and I mentioned last week, I mentioned like, for example, and and I don't know how to explain this, and I don't know if I'm, well, I I don't know what else to do, so I'm just going to try and talk through it, But, but just realize this, that we have this spectrum of believers today, and there are those who believe, nobody believes that the Old Testament is irrelevant, okay? Nobody takes their Bible and just rips out the Old Testament and says, we are going to be like Gideons and we are only going to have the New Testament, okay? The Gideons just do that, I think, just to make smaller Bibles. But anyway, so, but uh, nobody really believes that. And nobody, <clears throat> so the two camps that you have are, are, are covenant theologians and dispensationalists. Those are the theological terms. If you don't need to know that, don't worry about it. The two other words that we use often are uh, continuity versus discontinuity. Nobody believes in 100% discontinuity. Nobody believes there's no relation between the New Testament and the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament today. 
No one believes on the other end of the spectrum that there's 100% continuity, that uh, we need to sacrifice animals and worship Jesus. So I go to the temple and, and, and I sacrifice a, a, a lamb on the altar and then I go to church and have communion. Nobody believes that you need to do that. So nobody's 100% continuity and nobody's 100% discontinuity. But there are different degrees of people. And the defining mark to see which side you're on is, is there a future for Israel? If you believe there's a future for Israel, for ethnic Israel, that God has a plan for him in the future, then you are on the discontinuity side. If you, were, if you believe, no, the church has replaced Israel, there is no future for ethnic Israel, then you're on the continuity side. And that's why people in the, in the continuity side have things like the Sabbath day. Well, Sunday is now the new Sabbath. And listen, I'm grateful that we have a heritage in this country of Sunday Sabbatarians because most people don't work on Sundays, which gives us a day where we can worship. And it is the Lord's day. It is the first day of the week. And so I'm grateful for that. Do I believe that it's the Sabbath? I do not. There are believers who do because they're in the continuity camp. It affects other things. It affects tithing. Um, uh, there are those in the continuity camp who say, well, the Old Testament says we should tithe. The New Testament never says we should tithe. The Old Testament says, well, you know, you have to give 10%. Old Testament actually doesn't say 10%. It's just, it's, it averages out to 23% a year because you had Deuteronomy chapter 14, you had to give to the feasts 10%. Uh, Numbers 18, you had to give to the uh, Levites 10%, so that's already 20%. And Deuteronomy 14 says that every third year, you had to give a special offering 10% of your income towards widows and orphans and sojourners and the needy. And so if you average it out, it was 23% a year that you're actually giving. So if you go back to an Old Testament saint and say, wow, you guys used to have to give 10%, uh, they'd say 10%. Boy, I wish. It was 23%, you know? And... The church or the, the nation, the, the, the temple, was their government. So it was all wrapped up in one, whereas we're in the church and we're taught principles on giving like give freely, give abundantly, the give not let, knowing what the left hand is doing or the, you know, uh, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Be cheerful in your giving. Be generous. And so abundant, generous, free will giving Theirs was mandatory giving. But there are those believers who see more continuity in the Old Testament and say, ah, you have to give your tithe. And on the extreme, again, nobody's 100% continuity. But when I was living in South Africa, I found that there were some churches who were in the continuity camp where once a month they would send the deacons around to people's houses. And the deacons were there to collect your tithe every month. Get a knock on the door. Gee, I wonder who that could be. You know, and they come in, they sit down, you give them some tea, and they say things like, You have a lovely home here, you know, and <clears throat> oh, by the way, we're here to collect that envelope, you know, and, and then you're expected to give your 10% based off of this tithe idea from the Old Testament. Whereas those who are in the discontinuity camp would be more likely, but would be more likely to say, Well, you know, um, uh, hey, 10% is a fine amount to give. I think if you want to give 10%, that's great. For some of you, that might be too much for your circumstances right now. It doesn't make sense for you to borrow money to keep up with your 10%, right? For other people, 10% is way too little. God's blessing you so much. I mean, you're supposed to give according to these principles of 
generously, abundantly, you know, cheerfully. And so you have to look at your heart and, and what's motivating. But here's the thing. Be careful because you don't want to... What happens is, is we talk about these two camps as though they're at war with each other, and they're not because nobody's 100% on one side or the other. It's just different degrees. And I'm giving an example of the people collecting the tithes going door to door, but not everybody in that camp is there. And there are people who are just on this side of that dividing line of continuity versus discontinuity. They don't believe there's a future for Israel, but they're much closer to us on so many things who are on this side. We do believe there's a future for Israel, but we're really close. And so you got to be careful that you're not using the guys on the far extreme as the negative examples of the other camp because we're believers. And this, the same thing happens with infant baptism, as I mentioned last week as well. That it's related to this idea of on the continuity camp of, of an idea related to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, so <clears throat> why do I mention that? I, I think it's important as we think about these covenants that there were certain things associated with the old covenants that are clearly taught in Scripture that they were merely signs. Colossians 2 16 says, therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon Sabbath, um, which are only a shadow of which is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Romans 14 teaches something similar as far as not judging one day above the other. So the Sabbath day was a shadow of something that was to come, which is Christ. But when you have Christ and he has come, and you can know him and have a relationship with him, you don't need that sign like you used to, even though it was valuable, even though it was good. And I don't want to say it was bad because it was intended to be uh, something good for man. When, when I, um, if you've ever been on a long road trip, this is going to be foreign to people who just use their GPS all day and they don't know where they're going. But, but um, when I, back when I was in college... Um, I went to college in Indiana. I used to drive from Indianapolis to, to L.A., it's over 2,000 miles, most of it on I-40. And uh, so it's, it's a long road. So, so you're getting on there. And I appreciated the signs, you know. You get to Kingman, Arizona, and, you're, you're, you know, there's a sign, you know, 318 miles to Los Angeles. You're like, woohoo! And you're doing the math. You're thinking, okay, 70 miles per hour. If I, if I, you know, 318 miles, and you're driving, you're thinking it's about four and a half mile, four and a half hours left to drive. You know, if I go 80, no, no, never mind. You don't, you know. But um, you're just you're thinking about that, okay? Eventually, you cross into California. You get to a place called Needles. Needles. Have you ever been to Needles? I've been through there. But anyway, so you. So you get to Needles and you're like, woohoo, it's, it's only 257 miles to go. And there's a sign that says it, you know, and you get to beautiful Barstow, <laughs> Barstow, California, 115 miles to LA. And you're like, I can do this. I can make it, right? And in the past, I've been appreciative of those signs, but I don't need those signs today because I'm in LA. I've got the reality. I don't need to use those. I had to look up and find out how far away Barstow was from here because I, I don't even think about those signs anymore, but they were meaningful to me 
at one point. And so when we have these Old Testament signs, these Old Covenant signs of a future reality and Christ is fulfilled and Christ is here and we can have a relationship with Christ and know him, then we don't, those old signs, though they were valuable then and though we can appreciate them and we still can learn from them, we don't apply them to our lives the same time as when we were there. Um, Okay, so as we come to our passage and we look at 2 Corinthians 3, um, we were talking about key distinctions of the new covenant ministry, and we already covered two of them, so I'm not going to cover them. The first one was the new covenant ministry has faithful ministers. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? Um, so, so a new covenant ministry has faithful ministers. We saw that basically Paul's just saying, hey, I've been faithful. You know I'm faithful. I don't need a letter of introduction to you again. And second key distinction of new covenant ministry is it has transformed lives, verses two and three. You are our letter, having been written on our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. And so there's this idea that, that hey, you know this is true gospel ministry because it's changed your life. You, you know that the new covenant ministry is genuine because people can't believe everybody. It's evident to everyone that you're a different person than you were before. But there's a third distinction that we didn't get to last time. And I'm going to say this in verses four through the beginning of verse six. The new covenant ministry provides confidence. Take a look at verse four of 2 Corinthians 3. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to consider anything coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. Paul is clearly not talking about self-confidence here because he, he makes it explicitly clear not that we are sufficient in our, of ourselves. So what kind of confidence is he talking about? He's talking about the type of confidence that he has in ministry to be able to minister. Uh, he... he uh, Remember in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, um, I quoted this uh, some weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago. Um, They said, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. And so, in other words, they're saying, hey, Paul sounds like he's really weighty and confident, but he's a very unimpressive person. Those were some of the attacks against him. I think I think that he's defending his apostolic authority here, and I think one of the, the, the accusations we know from chapter 10, some were saying things about him, that he's kind of a wimpy guy. He's very unimpressive, yet he comes across as, where does he get this confidence from? And so he makes it clear in verse four, his confidence comes from God, that this is all about God. It's not about him. And I made allusion to this, but I went ahead and looked it up, but it's not uncommon. In fact, it's beneficial if a preacher's personality is not what drives his ministry. And Hughes Oliphant Old, who was a, an American, he, um, he died not so long ago, maybe 10 years ago, and he uh, was a longtime uh, professor at Princeton and other places, but he wrote a, a multi-volume work on the history of preaching. 
And in volume seven, he has this quote about John MacArthur. And, and uh, John has read this himself, so I'm not revealing anything that he would say, what, what are you reading? But here we go. So this is what Hughes Old says about MacArthur. He says, why do so many people listen to MacArthur, this product of all the wrong schools? How can he pack out a church on Sunday morning in an age which church attendance is seriously lagged? Here is a preacher who has nothing in the way of a winning personality, good looks, or charm. Here is a preacher who offers us nothing in the way of sophisticated homiletical packaging. No one would suggest that he's a master of the art of oratory. What he seems to have is a witness of true authority. He recognizes in Scripture the Word of God, and when he preaches, it is Scripture that one hears. It is not that the words of John MacArthur are so interesting as it is that the Word of God is of surpassing interest. That's why one listens. I, I love that quote. I think it's great because it, it shows that it's, it's, it's not a man's personality that we're drawn to. It's the Word of God and the fact that, that this guy is able to, to make it clear and we're drawn to that Word. And Paul is saying something similar that his confidence was not about self-confidence, but it is about the, it doesn't come from ourselves, verse, end of verse 5, but our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. And this is where he focuses in on that new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. It is the spirit Robert Murray McShane, when speaking about those who are going to minister Christ to other people, says, it's not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And so I just wanted to highlight that because I think as we, as we look at what so many people look at today and what so many people are striving after is I, they want self-confidence. They want to be put forth as somebody who does something and everybody says, wow, look how great they are. And Paul's saying, yeah, I'm so unworthy. My sufficiency is only in Christ. But God has you where he has you to minister and you should be ministering by his strength, by his grace and not by your own strength. Verse 5 again, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. So we have the Spirit who changes your core, and now where you're at, this is a reminder for you to testify and minister to others around you. So that's really the third distinctive of a new covenant ministry is it provides confidence, but it's that, it's that motivation to minister to others. It's, it's, a, it's I have motivation to minister to others because of the fact that I've been changed from the inside. The new covenant ministry by God's grace motivates me and gives me confidence to be bold about the gospel. And so the more you learn about the new covenant ministry, the fact that 
there's a new covenant where God puts his spirit in people and changes them from the inside and that that is benefited now from those who repent and trust in Christ, that gives you the boldness to minister to others. But the new covenant ministry also gives life, and this is the fourth key distinctive. We've seen new covenant ministry has faithful ministers, transforms lives, provides uh, confidence, which then motivates us, but also gives life. It says in verse 3, chapter, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6 at the end, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Just let me make a couple of comments quickly, and then I'll save five minutes for, for questions. This letter kills, it's actually interesting. It's a present tense verb, the letter kills. When he says the letter here, he's talking about the law. It's the letter of the law. The law kills. How does the law kill? Well, it kills in a couple different ways. One, it kills any thought that you're okay with God. Any self-confidence you have is dead when you start reading the law. Um, and, and, and you know that because um, uh, if you're disillusioned, you know, uh, and you just start reading what God demands holiness, you realize, I'm not holy. Uh, Paul wrote about this in Romans 7, verses 8 through 11, but sin taking opportunity <clears throat> through the commandment worked out in me, coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, I once lived apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And this commandment, which was to lead to life, was found to lead to death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And so this idea that, hey, I somehow am okay with God, that the big guy upstairs, he's fine with me. Uh, as soon as you start reading the fact of what the law demands and holiness and you realize you're a sinner, and the wages of sin is death, it kills any aspiration you have of making it by your own self-righteousness, because self-righteousness will only lead to more condemnation. But also, the law condemns. It puts a life sentence on you, and the wages of sin is death. Uh, Ezekiel 18, the soul of him who sins must die. And so when you think about uh, not only the reality or the thought that somehow I could be okay, that's killed, but in actual fact, sin and the law, because we're sinners, the law sentences us to death physically. We die because we sin and we break God's law. But the life gives spirit. And, and, and that's, that's, that's what the, 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 the new covenant does. The new covenant is better because it doesn't just kill, it gives life. It it helps you to live internally. And so like the psalmist was able to cry out in Psalm 119, 165, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Um, And so we have this idea of a future life, eternal life, because of the spirit that's in us and we'll never be condemned for our sins and that eternal life you're living now. Eternal life, if you have repented and trusted in Christ, you have eternal life now. There's no such thing as as temporary eternal life. It's not like, well, I had eternal life, but I lost it. If you lost eternal life, it was never eternal. Okay, so I've kind of flown through those verses But let me just take five minutes as we close here and take questions.
Yes. Yeah, I, how, how do you respond to people who make the issue of covenantalism versus dispensationalism of first importance? It's not of first importance. It, it is, the gospel is of first importance. And so, and I think the way you respond to them is that you, you, you paint that spectrum and you say, okay, so you have 100 degrees on the spectrum and the dividing line right at 50, at the 50-yard line is actually, is there a future for Israel? And I believe that there is, is a future for Israel, but I'm on the 49-yard line because I'm reformed in my theology. And somebody else who says, well, I'm on the 49-yard line on the other side of that belief. Well, great, we're only two yards apart from each other. And you got people who are down near your end zone who are wacko, and I got people down near my end zone who are wacko. So stop saying that I'm like them, and I'll stop saying that you're like them. Let's stop shooting past each other and let's reach across the 50-yard line and hold hands because we're on the same team. Now, that, that metaphor has all kinds of problems, but... <laughs> Is that helpful? Okay, other questions? Yes? Yeah, yeah. A leaky dispensationalist, over on this spectrum, you have people who um, are discontinuitous, but they actually would, would map out like seven different literal dispensations. And they'll take you to chapter and verse and you say, you see, and they got it all figured out. I was, I was door-to-door evangelizing one time, and I go to this guy's house, and he says, I want to show you something. He takes these two flagpoles with bed sheets rolled up like a giant scroll, and he rolls it out in his living room, and he's got everything mapped out from creation to the, the end of the kingdom, a timeline with all these verses, I mean, the bed sheets that he's written on, Right? And he had seven literal dispensations. And, and in the covenant theologians are going like, these guys have so much figured out, like we don't even see that in Scripture. So a leaky dispensationalist is, is closer to the covenantalists in the, in the sense that um, we would say, okay, look, the Old Testament time was a different time than the church age, right? And the, 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 before sin entered, that was a different dispensation. So I, I see... I see Genesis 1 through 3 as a dispensation. I see the prior to uh, Christ coming and the church being established as a dispensation. And I see the church as a dispensation now. And there'll be a different... Dispensation just means time. There'll be a different time in the, in the tribulation, in the millennium. But I'm not going to map it all out to you and try and give you days and hours and details and, uh, to the extent that some people do. And so I think that's why he would use that term leaky dispensationalist, because the covenant theologian is saying, well, you know, we have these old covenants, there's the new covenant, and we are the fulfillment of the new covenant, and we are the Israel. And so they kind of limit, kind of, they use different terminology, but, but that's what they do. So I think he's just saying he's closer to, to people here than there in his own camp. All right. Well, we're out of time. I hope that was helpful for you. I want you to be encouraged. I want to close with just this thought. And that is that we live in a day and age where internally you can be changed. And that should motivate you for ministry. And the fact that if you have 
really given your life to Christ, you have life that should give you peace no matter what's going on in your life today. And that's really where the difference lies. And that's what Paul's trying to get across here where he talks about being a minister of the new covenant. All right, God bless you guys. Have a good day.